Well, good morning. I am uh, super happy that people were arrested, amen? Because they ought to be arrested, but we also ought to pray for their salvation too. So we want to pray that those who are involved in that get born again, that they get the gospel and that they get transformed by the power of the word of God. But it is a good thing that they got arrested. So, and that is an answer to prayer. I really believe that when we walk the streets of Franklin Street, that God is hearing our prayers, and so I want to encourage you to do that. Take a step out. It's going to take some courage. It's going to take uh, you to move out of a comfort zone for sure and to uh, walk the streets and pray, and so uh, it, it'll transform your life, not just those ladies and, and those who are involved in all of that. It'll change your life as well, so it's good to be back. It is really good to be back in Reading. My mom moved from Florida to Maryland, and so we went down there, loaded up her truck, drove the truck back, and and God was with us and gave us traveling mercies. Uh, but it's good to be home in Reading. It's good to be back uh, with God's people called Harvest Bible Chapel Reading. And, and you are them, and so we are them, and so it's good to be home. I want to get into God's Word. I want to start a new series with you, and so I want to encourage you to go to John chapter 11. So take your Bible, take your Bible app, whatever you might have, a hard copy app, uh, and turn to John chapter 11. Before we get into the Scripture uh, I just want to say thank you to, to Don Heinz, to Ralph Marks, and to Scott Leonard, who led the service. Can we just honor them with a hand clap? They did filling in for us, for me. And so I just appreciate those guys. I really do believe that they love Jesus, and they love the church, and they want to take care of the church. And so anytime somebody fills in for me or takes the leadership role at Harvest Reading, uh, I just don't want anybody pe- to be in there. It's important for them to have a heart for the Lord. It's important for them to have a heart for the church and for you guys. And so they all have that. And so I'm thankful for them personally. So let's begin a new series today. Now here's what I want you to do. Take your Bible. Who has a hard copy of the Bible? Hold it up. Hard copies? You're over 60, right? For the hard <laughs> Okay, over 50, all right? Let's, let's, let's see the Bible apps. Let's see the hard copy up in the air, the Bible apps up in the air. Here we go, here we go. Good. How about we stand to our feet with the Word of God? We're going to pray. With the Word of God, hold it up in the air. This is what we believe around here. Don't worry, I'm not doing a Joel Osteen thing. <laughs> Although there's nothing wrong with that. I, I like what he does. And so uh, let's pray together. God, we pray that you would help us to really truly believe your inerrant, without error, Word of God. Help us to believe in the infallibility of the word of God, the believability of scripture. You gave this to the prophets and the apostles. It was written down exactly the way that you wanted it to be. And now we're gonna learn. We're gonna hear from you. We're gonna hear your voice. Holy Spirit, you're the one that inspired. You're the one that wrote this ultimately. And so Holy Spirit, would you teach us, help us to know what it means when we say that Jesus is the ultimate tomb raider. And so, God, we pray for an anointing now. We pray, God, for clouds to be lifted over and out of the way. Because there's clouds over the city, Lord. There's clouds over people's lives. And, God, we pray for those to be moved. We pray, God, for you to shine so powerfully in this moment when we study the word of God. And as we close the service with a song, shine powerfully, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. God's people are saying? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Sorry about the over 60 thing. Just the first number that came to my mind. I'm closing in on 60. Well, another seven years. It feels like I'm closing in. I want to do this three-part series with you. I've titled Tomb Raider. Now, when you think of a raider, when you think of a raider, you might be thinking of someone that's going to be on the screen behind me. Take a look. Is this what comes to mind? Check that out. 
Now, you've heard of the Philly fanatic, right? This guy takes it to a whole nother level. And so next slide, please, if you would. Obviously, this is referring to a team, football team called the Oakland Raiders. Let me give you a definite. Oh, we got a fan of the o two fans. Is this going to spread or is this going to stay with two? Is that it? And so uh, let's get a definition of what it is to be a raider. So a person who attacks an enemy in enemy's territory. I want you to hold on to that definition. Try to, you know, file it in your mind. A person who attacks an enemy in enemy territory. Uh, Jesus is the tomb raider. He is the ultimate tomb raider. He goes into enemy territory, obviously Satan's territory, and he takes back. Now, how many of you would say, you know what? I was taken captive to do the will of the devil at one time. Raise your hand. That should be every person in the room because the Bible teaches that you and I, blinded to our sin, original sin, we are fallen, have been taken captive to do the devil's will. We were slaves to Satan. You were entombed, and I was entombed until Jesus, the tomb raider, came, and he called us out of that into his marvelous light. And that is the gospel. And so when we give the gospel to someone, or if you receive the gospel, you repent of your, your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the tomb raider has come. Jesus has come, and he has called you out of that death. And he's brought life and immortality to you. Isn't that good? That was a good place for an amen there. How about that? And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Jesus being the tomb raider. Bible says many things about being entombed we're going to look at the tomb as lifelessness, darkness, death. We're going to look at the tomb in a different kind of a way that maybe uh, you maybe haven't heard before at Easter time. I wanted to take an angle to Easter that's going to be a little bit different than maybe you've heard in the past, and so I hope you're okay with that. And so I want you to look at this text of Scripture because we all have a tendency to still live among the tombs. Now, although Jesus saved you and he came into your tomb of darkness and rescued you, we're still wanting by our flesh to live among the tombs, the tombs of bitterness and revenge, of impurity and unholiness. He wants us to live among the tombs of things in our life that we're trying desperately to be freed from, but the enemy seems to have a stronghold. Let me show you this. Let's go to the next slide here in, in Matthew's gospel. I want you to follow along with this. Do we have it on there? Good. Matthew 8, 28 to 34, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, there were two demon-possessed men that met him. This is Jesus. Coming out of the tombs. Now, these are the men that lived there. This is where their home was. Their home was among the tombs, really in a cemetery. And so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have we to do? What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. Let's keep going. Is that all we have? It's behind me. It's not on this. Sorry about that. We got a little technical difficulty. And the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. I want you to see something here. This is not referencing the fact that you and I are demon-possessed. But I do want you to see an illustration here that the enemy will want us to live among the tombs. He will want us to live in these places still. And although we're being sanctified, and although Jesus has saved us from our sins, and sanctification has begun, it's a progressive thing. Sanctification is ongoing and forever until we get to heaven. And so, 
you need to know, and we need to know, that, that there are still tombs that the enemy wants us to come back into. Does that make any sense? There are places in our life of darkness and of decay and death that the devil wants to re-erect strongholds. He wants to erect some things into our life, into our mind, that are going to wreak havoc in our life spiritually. And so we need to know that Jesus is still the tomb raider in our sanctification, not just our salvation. So the tombs of hopelessness and depression and despair and anxiety, the tombs of shame and of addiction and idol worship, these are all tombs that Christians will battle with. And some of you are are very familiar with these, and, and you want the tomb raider to come to your rescue. And by the end of this, not just this message, but also the series, we're praying that you would understand that Jesus is coming to you like he's going to come to the the tomb of Lazarus, and he's going to call Lazarus to new life. And he's going to do the same for you and for me. Amen? John chapter 11. So the title of the series is Tomb Raider. It's going to be three weeks all the way to the end of the month. I want to title this first message, Timing is Everything. Timing is Everything. Have you ever heard that phrase before, Timing is Everything? Would you believe that? It's not a trick question. I believe that. Timing is everything. I want you to see some scriptures. Can we fly through these, you guys? These are some scriptures that have to do with divine timing. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a timing that's unfolding providentially and sovereignly. It's happening in history. It's happening in your life, your history as an individual. It's happening in this church. Matthew 8, 29 says, And behold, they cried out, What have we to do? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Divine timing. There's going to be a time where Satan and, and the demons were going to be cast into the pit. And so there's timing to all of this. Matthew 12, 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. Stop right there. Don't go any further. Matthew 12, 1. This is talking, oh, this is is huge, because the religious leaders of the day had a problem with Jesus and some of the things that he was doing on Sabbaths and and all of that. And so there's timing involved. There was timing for Jesus to do what he did. There was timing in all of the detail of the unfolding of redemption as Jesus walked the earth. One more. Let me show you this. Or maybe two more. Mark 1.15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Listen, real quick, for those who might not be a Christian, the time might be for today to be your salvation day. It might be today. I don't know. That's in the, the sovereign plans and purposes of God. For me at 19 years old, I remember where I was. I was in college. I was at a Christian college. I thought I was a believer. I thought I was born again, and I was redeemed, but I wasn't. And so at a Christian college crusade, I got born again. It was my time. And so you can be in a church for all of your years as a believer or thinking you're a believer, but now's going to be the time. It's going to be the real time for you to be born again and to be converted. One more. I think this is in Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Do you know that Jesus came at the perfect time? Do you believe that? He came at the perfect time. Now listen, our life is unfolding with timing, with perfect timing. Now when it comes to timing, have you ever found that God works on a different timetable? Anybody? It's not your timetable. It's, it's not my timetable. 
God is working his own timetable. And so what we try to do is we tell time, and we can look at our watches and our phones, and we can look at a clock, and we try to tell time. We try to plan, and we try to try to take time and, and maybe even add to time, and we try to prevent time from unfolding and, and all of those things. We can't do that. We're not sovereign enough to do all of that. God is the one who is over time. He's in control of time. But I want you to be honest with me, and I'll be honest with you from this pulpit. There have been times I've been super frustrated with the timing of God. Anybody else in the house like that? Raise your hand. Right? And so I'd be praying. I'd say, God, I really need you to do this, and I need you to do it now, God. I don't know if I can wait any longer. And so what usually happens? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing happens. You know, and I'm like, God, okay, now, now, please move. Move now. And I think this is the best time for you to move. And what happens? Nothing. But God is still doing something because it's not my timing. All right, here's a little confession time. You ready? A little confession. Anybody a control freak here? Anybody a controller? Controller, controller. People are like, I don't really want to raise my hand on that. Every human being is a controller in various ways. And we try to control time. God is the one who is sovereign over that. Wait to see in John chapter 11, this is the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's an amazing story. It's a real story in a real place. You'll see a picture here. This is the tomb of Lazarus. It's an actual place. This is historically and traditionally where Lazarus was buried. And we're going to see something happen in John chapter 11 that was truly supernatural. It was miraculous. Let me give you a little bit of background. John's gospel is the only one that records the story of Lazarus. The other gospels don't. The other writers don't. It is a heavy theological uh, book And there's reasons for that because the theme of John is the son of God or the divinity of Jesus Christ or Jesus is God. That is the theme. It's heavy theology that the apostle John is recording here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This miracle will be his last public miracle before the crucifixion. I mean, this is a big deal. There was a smaller miracle that happens a little bit later, but this is the last public miracle. The other one was more private that's coming, but this is the one that is going to set the pace. This is the one that really is the prelude to the Passion Week. It is a huge, huge miracle. It is spiritual. It is supernatural. Now, let me just say this. We've been desensitized to the supernatural in America. We've been desensitized. And I think there's some reasons for that, and I'm not going to go out on the edge and write a, a, a paper on this or a book on this kind of thing, but if you'll bring up the next picture here, uh, you're going to see somebody that you're familiar with. Who would that be? Harry Potter. And so what you have in the media, which is our, the entertainment industry, is a multi-multi-billion dollar industry, and they have an agenda, and they have a message that they're trying to preach in each and every movie. Now, what you have, a, a lot of films are now portraying a lot of the supernatural and spiritual, right? So if you watch the Marvel or, or the, some of the superheroes, you got people flying, you got people with all kinds of supernatural powers. Of course, Harry Potter is another one. And so when you're pumped into all of the supernatural from this fantasy world, then what happens is when something truly supernatural happens, it's just going to be desensitized. So if I'm going to say to you, in John chapter 11, a dead man comes to life, some of you will be like, How did that happen? The Christian church in America has been desensitized. So what you're going to find in John chapter 11, we're going to look at it three weeks in a row. You're going to see a man that was dead 
and comes back to life. And that far supersedes anything that Hollywood is going to portray. This is a phenomenal miracle. It's a very important one. I want to give you some principles. There's just two principles I want to look at out of the text. You might have the outline in front of you, and so I want to go through these out of the the chapter here that we're going to consider for three weeks. Here's number one. Jesus knows when to enter your tomb and raid the doubt or doubts out of your life. Jesus knows exactly when to come into the tomb of doubt. And listen, doubts are going to fester in darkness. This is what doubts do in the tombs of our life. See, you've been hurt, and you were hurt at six years old, and somebody sinned against you, and then that kind of caused you to spin out, trying to figure out what your life was all about. Mom and dad weren't able to do it. It was traumatic, and so you're trying to find your way, and then all of a sudden, the enemy starts to come into your young mind, and he's building strongholds, and all of a sudden, these places of doubt start to erect in your your mind, in your subconscious, and in your heart. And so now you've been in this tomb of doubt and you're trying to find your way out and you need the tomb raider to come and you need him to deliver you out of those doubts. Doubts grow in darkness. They grow in isolation. They grow in the aloneness, the blackness. It's it's when the traumas of life or when the sin comes against you or maybe when you sin and now you're facing consequences to all of that. All of those places the devil takes and he specializes in creating these places of doubt. I remember being in tombs of doubt because of the traumas that my wife and I had faced. I remember the enemy speaking to me and he's saying, is God really good? Is God really faithful? Is God really with you? Is he the one that is is really behind this because he doesn't like you anymore? And these doubts were starting to develop inside of my mind. There's many corridors in this tomb of doubt. Sometimes you'll go down these and you'll be trying to find your way out and trying to find the light and trying to find your way to freedom and you're going down this corridor and it just leads to more doubt and then this corridor and then this other one and and you're finding yourself in a maze and you can't find your way out. There are times when God is going to reveal himself in very powerful and profound ways but that's only going to come through your pain. It's only going to come through your agony. It's only going to come when you're wrestling with things. When you get to that place where it's like, you know what, I can't see the next step. What do I do? And then God is going to show up as the tomb raider. I want to go through the text with you. If you're in John chapter 11, we're going to go through this and really get really some of the the depth of what was happening in the story. If you take your eyes to verse 1. Verse 1 says, now a certain man was ill. I want you to stop there because that first word now is a transitional word. It's a very important word. The thoughts of John as the Spirit of God is revealing this gospel to him now takes him back to the ministry of John the Baptist. If you look at chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, it says, he went away again, crossed the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. This is John the Baptist's ministry. Remember, it's a ministry unto repentance. The Messiah was coming. John is preparing the way. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And so John the Baptist is really preparing the way for the Messiah. And so that's an important thing to understand, because as we go into John chapter 11, you're going to see 
that Jesus really has an objective. He has an agenda here with the lives of the people that he loved dearly, as he has an agenda with you and with me, because he loves us. So here's where it's going. It's moving through this wonderful story. It's a story of pain, of loss, of tragedy, of triumph. It's a, it's a tremendous chapter. Really, it's the high point of the Gospel of John. This is the peak and the pinnacle of the ministry of Jesus to prove that he is the Son of God, to prove that he is who he said he was. This miracle is the miracle of all miracles outside of his own resurrection. And so we need to look at it. So now there's a certain man who was ill. His name is Lazarus. You'll see that. It's Eliezer is the Old Testament equivalent of Lazarus. It's a very popular name. There were many people in Old Testament and New Testament that were called Lazarus. And so th this isn't really that significant. Um, it's kind of like the name Bob. Bob's a very common name, or even John, or maybe Peter. And, and so Lazarus is mentioned here. It says that he was ill. We're not sure what the illness is, but we know that the illness leads to death. He's from a town called Bethany. If you go outside the eastern gate of Jerusalem and you go up the Mount of Olives and over the other side of that, about two miles, you'll come to the village of Bethany. It's a very important little village that Jesus was frequent in. He did a lot of ministry there. It's probably the same distance as downtown Reading to Wyomissing to kind of give you a reference point. So this city, Bethany, was located. It was a village, really. Not a city, but it was a village, and it was a very important village. It was located on a very important road where a lot of people would be pilgrimaging uh, from Galilee and some other parts of Israel to Jerusalem for the festivals and the feasts. And so they would go right through Bethany, and they would probably stay in the house of Lazarus. Maybe they had a bed and breakfast of some sort. It's a very real possibility that their house really housed a lot of people that were going to Jerusalem. But the one person that would stay with them was Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus was there in Bethany, he stayed with Lazarus. And you'll notice in the text that his two sisters are mentioned. You'll see it, Mary and Martha. Are you familiar with them if you've been a Christian for a while? Verse 2, it says, and Mary, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and it was Mary who anointed the Lord, I'm in verse 2, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, if you go to chapter 12, don't take your eyes there, but the story is there of Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And so you're thinking, well, he, he says in verse or chapter 12, why, why is he saying something here? You've got to remember, Matthew and Mark, who do record this, wrote many, many years, in fact, decades before John the Apostle did. John wrote in the A.D. 90s plus, and so he was the last apostle that died. But you have Matthew and Mark who are writing about Mary wiping Jesus' feet, and so... When you get to chapter 12 and you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't line up. It's only because John is now recording it. But it's already been well known that Mary was the one who had wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair. Now, I want you to look at verse 3 because it says, this is important. It's all important, but I want you to see the details of it. So the sisters, they sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's the, the Greek word phileo. We get that, obviously, the city of brotherly love, which is everybody. Man, if you don't know that, we live only an hour, man, we got some work to do, right? And so that's phileo. He, he had a love for Lazarus. It's a brotherly love. Now, you got to remember, in chapter 11, Jesus is displaying his divinity and his humanity, and so both of those are emerging. And so here's where the humanity of Christ is emerging. And so Jesus needed friends. Did you ever look at it like that? We all need friends. 
The pattern has been set. We need friends. Jesus needed friends. In his humanity, Lazarus was that friend, phileo. It was a brotherly love. Jesus loved to hang out with Lazarus. Jesus was a friend of Lazarus. Can you imagine being Lazarus and having Jesus Christ as your friend? You think you have a great Facebook (laughs) page with all of your friends. Can you imagine having Jesus on yours? It's incredible for Lazarus to be that close to the Messiah. But this is the relationship that he had. You'll notice in verse 4, Jesus says this. This is a very unusual statement. He says, this illness does not lead to death. Now, that doesn't make any sense because we know that Lazarus does die. So why is he saying this? What's the purpose of the illness and the death? Do you know what it is? What's the purpose of Lazarus dying? It's in the text if you want to look at it there. What does it? Yeah, for the glory of God. Somebody said that. It's for the glory of the Lord. That's the purpose, ultimate purpose of the death, the sickness and the death of Lazarus. And, and, and you have to understand this. Sickness and death can be used of the Lord. Not all sickness and death is all against the will of God. Listen, some people are going to get sick and some people are going to die. And it's not because of sin in their life and it's not because of the devil. It's because God has ordained that to be so. When Jim Elliott was speared to death with Nate Satan, Roger Udarian, and Pete Fleming, and all of those guys, when the spear went in, when they died that death, that was God's plan. Just watch the program on Columbine. Do you remember Columbine shooting in 1999? Some of you might not have been born back then. You're just too young to remember that, but... The, the survivors of that look back in hindsight and they see the sovereignty of the Lord, the providence of the Lord. And in that pain, in that evil, in that destruction, God was sovereignly over that, using it for his glory. And he does the same thing for all of the things that we've ever gone through in our life. If you don't grab onto that truth, you're always going to stay in the tombs of your life. You'll be living in cemeteries the rest of your life. Tomb Raider wants to come in, and Jesus is coming into these people that he loves. He loves Lazarus, he loves Mary, and he loves Martha. But understand this, some sickness is a result of sin. Corinthians talks about they weren't living the way they should, right? And so there was sickness. They were coming to the Lord's table in an inappropriate way, and some of them were dying. So there is some sickness that is unto death, This is not a sickness that is relating to the sin in Lazarus's life or Mary and Martha's life. It's for the glory of the Lord. So if you know someone that's in a hospital bed and you're saying, God, I pray that you heal them and God can heal them. And we should pray Jehovah Rophi, God who heals. But I want you to encourage you this, to pray this, God, be glorified in this moment. Be glorified in their bed. Be glorified. Amy Carmichael was in a bed for over 20 years, a great missionary to India in a bed for 20 years. It wasn't because she had little faith. It wasn't because there was sin in her life. It was for the glory of the Lord. You gotta hold on to that kind of thing. If you're taking your pain and you're like, God, this is not of you. It's not of your will. This isn't part of your plan. No, it is part of his plan. You gotta hold on to the theology of all of that. You'll never make it out of your tomb. It's important. This is for the glory of the Lord, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Watch that in the text, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now let's keep going through the text. Notice in verse 5, if you'll take your eyes. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's a wonderful word. That's not phileo, that's agapao. That's a divine love. So watch what he's doing. He's going from his humanity to his divinity. 
Now he's moving into another realm in the lives of the people that he loved. Now he's going to set himself up, not as a friend of Lazarus, but as the Savior, the Son of God, God the Son. He's moving through the miracle, and he's going to get to this high point where everybody's going to be watching him, and he's going to say to Lazarus, I want you to come out of the tomb. And they're going to be looking at that, and they're going to be going like, whoa, this is not just my friend anymore. He's more than my friend. This is God. This is a massive miracle here. Jesus is calling these people, he's calling Mary and Martha, and he's calling the disciples out of the tomb of doubt. I love this. Remember, timing is everything. Timing is everything. Watch what happens in the text. If you'll take your eyes back to the text, it says there in verse 5 or verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what did he do? Look at it. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How many people have never seen that before? Raise your hand. You've never seen that. You have seen it before? Why did Jesus stay two days longer? Why didn't he say, oh, well, Lazarus is sick. We need to go. He doesn't. He purposely stays. Why did he do that? You can just say it out loud. Why do you think? What was that? Yes. So Lazarus needed to die. He needed to die. This is called a divine setup. And, and God divinely sets up our life. And that's what he's doing here. He's waiting for Lazarus to die. He stayed two days longer. Remember, timing is everything. Now, if you're listening and watching Jesus, you're probably thinking, whoa, God, you, you, Jesus, you need to get going now. You need to go now. Have you ever had that kind of panic in your life? It's like somebody's sick. You need to go now. You need to go now. We're trying to control it. That's what we're trying to do. You're trying to take time. Only God can take time. Only God is God. We're not God. And so this is, this is happening in them because they're human. You know, and the disciples are looking at that and they're like, you need to get going. What's going on here? Now he transitions from Mary and Martha and he moves to the disciples. And now watch the doubt in the disciples in verse 7 if you'll notice it. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, this doesn't make any sense to the disciples. In verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just, were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Now, watch the doubt. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What does that mean? Why did Jesus say this? Who's in control of the night? Who's in control of the day? If Jesus goes to Judea, are the people that are against him and going to stone him, are they really in control of the, the future of the Messiah? Could they have done something that would have prevented Jesus going to the cross? Could they have said, you know what, we're going to stone this guy. He's never going to make it to the cross or the resurrection. Could they have done that? Could these people stop the sovereign plan of God? Yes or no? No. No, it's in motion. Listen, your life is in motion too. Nothing's going to stop that. You're going to get to where you need to be, where God wants you to be. And so this thing Jesus is saying to them, he's like, wait a minute. Why are you guys so worried about me being stoned to death? You know, I have a purpose and a plan. It's going to be the cross and I'm going to rise again from the dead, and I can go there to Judea, and, and they're not going to be able to stop what I have, have planned or the Father has planned. 
And that's such a good truth. It's a solid truth, but they're doubting. And it's, it, it, it's this place in their, their mind. Watch the doubt manifest again in, in these people's lives. Look at verse 21. Let's skip down there. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, now obviously we'll look at this next week, but I just want to highlight something. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, watch this, my brother would not have died. Oh, oh, you had the wrong timing, Lord. You had the wrong timing. You just didn't know how to keep time. If you would have been here. Now, now jump down to verse 39. Go all the way down there. So verse 39. And Jesus said, standing before the throne, standing before the tomb, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. What's going on in her mind? It's still doubt. It's still the tomb of doubt. Now, what specifically? You'll see the outline there in verses 6 to 8. The devil wants you to stay in the tomb of doubt in the area of God's wisdom. God, you messed up my life. God, you don't know how to take care of my life. In fact, you made so many mistakes with my life. What's the deal with that? Have you ever been in that place? I remember in the tomb of doubt, it was just so black and it was so cold and it was so lonely. And, and I remember saying to, to God, God, I don't know if I can trust you with my life because it seems like you've messed it up. What was I doing there? I was doubting his wisdom. And so I needed to go back to the Father and I say, Father, you know all things. You know exactly what I need. And all of the things that have come into my life is painful, my wife's life, as, as painful as they are. You are wise. Watch for the devil to do that. Letter B is God's goodness. You start to think, well, God's not good. You start to doubt that he's a good God. That's in verse 6. And then verse 39, which we just looked at, is God's ability. Look for those areas for the devil to create doubts in your life, especially if you're going through some really dark and difficult uh, seasons in your life. God's timing. Let me share a second one with you as we close. Number two, Jesus knows when to enter your tomb and raid confusion out and bring clarity. Now, this is with a different angle. You're thinking, well, that looks kind of similar to the first one. This is in verses 11 down to 16 and 23 down to verse 27. Now, the emphasis on Jesus' uh, points here in the text and the way he's treating them is that uh, he's coming to the crucifixion. He knows the crucifixion is just around the corner. And he needs for them to come into this place of faith and trust. He needs for them to come to this place where they believe that Jesus is God. That he's God. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb. How many days? Been dead four days. Now that's significant for sure, and here's why. Jewish people wanted to put corpses in the ground fast. They didn't want decay. They didn't want the body to decompose. And so they, they're not like the Egyptians. The Egyptians would, uh, uh, what do you call that when you, yeah, what's another word? Embalm. They, they embalmed uh, their dead to preserve them, but not the Jewish people. And so they wanted them to get in the ground as fast as possible. And so here you have Lazarus who's been dead four days. And there is reason for that. There's reasons why the Holy Spirit wanted to write that in, why it happened the way that it happened. Now, this isn't the only place that Jesus rose somebody from the dead. Do you remember some of the others? Remember Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, and there was a funeral procession. I think it was a young man who was dead, and Jesus went over to that young man and said, Arise, and that was awesome. 
But they weren't dead four days. So there's a purpose here. Timing is everything. He's waiting for Lazarus to be in a decomposition. Is that the word? Uh, decomposition way? Or, or? Yeah, he's, he's, he's looking really nasty inside that tomb. That's what's happening. And there's reason for that. And, and so let's look at the text. I just want to take you back there. Look at verse 18. Uh, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And verse 19 says, And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God or from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, and I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, where, where's the doubt going? Okay, the doubt is going to faith, but specifically here, the faith is in the Son of God. So you're going to come out of your tomb of doubt in your life, whatever that you might be going through, you're going to come out the same way. You're first going to, you're going, to, you're going to have these doubts defeated by the tomb raider, and you're going to believe in God's wisdom, his goodness, and his ability in your life. But then you're going to come out the other side of that going, Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. That's the objective with all of the tombs that we are struggling with. And so here it's unfolding, and the question is fantastic. Jesus says, do you believe this? It's clarity all the way. And she says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, the Savior. All of these things now are becoming clear. And he hasn't even been raised from the dead yet. This is amazing. I want you to see this. This is important for our life and our sanctification and growth because some of us are walking in confusion. Some of us have been too confused about the character and the attributes of God. Listen, if all our Christianity ever becomes is like, you know what, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm just going to accept Jesus into my life. You know, you might have done that at vacation Bible school when you were a kid, but all along the way, you've never come to that strong place in the attributes of God where you know that he is faithful, that he is good, that he is righteous, that he is sovereign, that his providence is guiding your life, every detail along the way. If you don't get to that place, you're going to be in the tombs the rest of your life. But I really believe that Jesus, the tomb raider, is going to raid today. He's already raiding through his word because you know that those doubts that you've been playing in your mind now are starting to leave. They're going to leave. Some of them are going to leave by the end of the service. And the clarity of who Jesus Christ is to you as the Messiah of God is going to be so more real to you than it's ever been in all of your Christian life. It's going to happen. It's a wonderful story. We're going to look at the rest of it next week, or for the next two weeks. I'm going to take three Sundays with you just to make it through John chapter 11. Listen. I'm going to close. The Savior is in the business of raiding tombs. This is who he is and what he does. He is a tomb raider. Your doubts, your confusion, he's going to raid all of that. He's bringing you out of that and into a different place of faith and clarity. You're not meant to stay with the strongholds. 
You're not meant to stay with them. Jesus said to Lazarus, it's time for you to come out and for you to be unbound. Maybe some people in this room need to be unbound today. Can we all stand? I so appreciate Kevin Rasky and our worship team. But before we sing this song, we're going to have some prayer. And I'm going to ask you a question. Is there anybody here that would say, you know what, I have been in the tombs of doubt. This is where I've lived my life for way too long, and I really want this to come to an end. And I want you to pray for me. I want you to lift up your hand. You've been living in the tombs of doubt in some form in your life. Now lift it up like you're not ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed to lift your hand up if you need prayer. Lift it up, lift it up, lift it up. Anybody else? Anybody else? Can, I, can you do me a favor? Those who lift up their hands, keep your hands up like you're trying to touch the ceiling. Try to touch it as high as you can. Do you, do you see the hands lifted? For those who don't have hands, would you move out of your chairs or go near them and just lay a hand on your shoulder? Don't worry, they're not going to take your wallet or anything like that. They're not going to pickpocket you. We're just going to pray over you. You're the ones that God's spirit is moving and, and the Tomb Raider is coming, and the doubts are going to leave, and faith is going to be restored, and the clarity of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God is just going to become so much more precious to you than ever before. So has everybody who had a hand up? You're putting your hand down because you don't want anybody touching you, right? It's okay. It's really going to be all right. Trust me on this. This is how the move of the Spirit is. We're going to pray. So everybody, let's do that together. God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to realize that you're the Tomb Raider. Jesus, you come into dark places of our life and you bring us to your marvelous light. You change things that only you can change. And so, God, we trust you. We trust you that what you did in Lazarus's life, not physically for us, but spiritually, that you're calling us out. That you don't want these doubts anymore to, about the wisdom of God or the goodness of God or the abilities of God. We reject all of those. We're coming out of that. You're bringing us out of this tomb and so, Lord, we're believing, we're trusting. We have faith now. It's being restored. It's being revived. And all of these people, we're believing this for those who put their hands up, God. And so for those, Lord, who have their hands up, who have now wanted clarity as to who you are and what you're doing in their life, help them to know in this moment right now that you are the Messiah, that you are the Messiah, the anointed one, for those lifting up their hands, can I see the hands again? And you can look up at me. We don't need to close our eyes on this. Open your eyes, everybody. For those that lifted up their hands, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe, just say it out loud, I believe that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. That he is the anointed one. Mary and Martha needed to say that. And you know what's going to happen in their life? Unbelievable miracles are going to happen. We're going to see that next Lord's Day. But you got to believe ahead of time. You don't believe after the fact. You believe ahead of time. So those who lift up their hands, and you're saying, I believe that he is the Messiah, that he's the anointed one, that he is the Son of God, that he can do anything, and he's coming into my tombs, and he is raiding them because he loves me. He loves me. And God, I pray over those who had their hands up for freedom. I pray for deliverance. I pray for healings. You're Jehovah Rophi. You're the God who heals. We receive the healing, Lord. Those places in my, the tombs that, that are in my life, Lord, in those places in our history, my wife's and mine, God, you're, you're tomb raider. You're coming in and you're doing things in my heart right now. 
in Lisa's heart right now, and we're believing that. How many people received that from the Lord? By faith. I'm not asking if you feel any different. That's irrelevant. Feelings are irrelevant right now. It's faith. It's trust. Can we sing his praise today? Let's do that. Let's sing his praise. All right, Kevin.